This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code EXAMINE. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 89 is something like, I don't know, does matter exist? And we read three dialogues between Hylas and Philonus from 1713. You can join the discussion, get the text, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer. Ideating from Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, it would have been a lot funnier if you had just left it at that. <laughs> <laughs> this is Wes Allen in Boston, Massachusetts, which it turns out is in God's mind. This is Dylan Casey, full of hule in Middleton, Wisconsin. Hule? Is that how you pronounce hile? Was I saying it well, wrong? Well, hule is the Greek word that hylas is based on. Ah. Which is matter. Sounds like matter. It's got that doughy kind of sound to it. Yeah. Hule. Hule. I know I'd seen, maybe it was in Husserl as a technical term. He just stole it from Aristotle. It just means stuff, right? So this is not something that a regular person, this question, thinks about. <laughs> Does matter really exist? Of course matter really exists. No, they think about it if they've been smoking some reefer. <laughs> I got to ask a question right from the beginning. Why is it Barclay and not Berkeley? That I don't know. I just know it's Barclay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a fundamental Because axiom. I was corrected about that enough times. Yeah. <laughs> so it's part of the philosophical indoctrination. Yes. That evidently does not extend to any foreign names, but if it's merely Irish, then yes. Yeah, he was Irish, so maybe it has something to do with that. Oh, Barclay. <laughs> oh. Well, it's just a funny thing with him and being immaterialism, right? Is that you look at it and you perceive it as Berkeley, but it's Barclay. <laughs> right. If he were right, it would just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sort of contradicts his theory. Usually we try to come up with a question to open these things that is something a regular person would ask. But Barclay takes himself to be returning to common sense, that the only reason that you would need him is because you've been indoctrinated by this bad philosophy that tells you that there is matter, that there is substance in the Aristotelian sense. Right. And he thinks that pre-philosophical thought you might think, because we talk about atoms and things like that now, that, oh yeah, sure, we believe in matter, but that's not what the philosophers were talking about. That you could talk about actual macroscopic objects in front of you, and you could talk about looking at them through a microscope, and you could talk about little tiny bits of them and call them atoms or call them whatever you want. All that stuff, none of that would count as matter in the technical philosophical sense that he's arguing against. So really, he's a radical empiricist, right? And he's arguing against rationalism. And he sees matter or material substance, let's say, as intricately tied up with this kind of rationalism that he rejects. Say why that's rationalist or what that means here. We've talked a lot on these podcasts about things in themselves, things in themselves being these radically mind-independent metaphysical objects which somehow cause our experience, but of which we can't really have any experience or say anything about. For those people who are used to that move, I think they can understand some of the motivation behind Barclay's argument. But to get to why it's rationalism, and so we'll see in these dialogues, he rejects 
abstract ideas, which I think is a linchpin of the argument. This goes back to some of our episodes on, say, phenomenalism. If you think about what it means to perceive an object, well, really, we're having this series of sensations. We're having multiple sensations with different senses at any given time. And then we're having different sensations at different times. And we have to sort of collect all these up and infer from these to some object. Why do you say infer as opposed to construct or just group? I didn't see the word infer in Barclay anywhere, but yet you use that. He uses infer. He talks about, for instance, inferring from textual marks to signs. He does that little thing in the very beginning where he wants to say, when I say an object of experience... I want to talk about the raw elements of experience and not anything that we've inferred from experience. So when I talk about a sound, I might hear the sound of thunder and attribute that to clouds in the distance. But when I talk about thunder, I'm talking about that raw sensory sound experience. I'm not talking about it's the cause that I've inferred from it. So that inference is important because ultimately we'll see he thinks that something like material substance is something that we think we've inferred as the unitary transcendent object and cause of all of our experiences. So I think, again, it's comparable to this transcendent object in phenomenalism, which we call transcendent because with an experience, it's not itself the raw sensations of experience, but it's something that we think of. We, you could say constructed if you want, but it's something that sort of stands behind experience. It doesn't have to be its cause. Well, what you're describing is sort of the bad kind of inference that he's imputing to the materialists, that he's saying, you really just have sense impressions and you infer that there's something in the physical world that is causing them. That I understand, but you also used infer in what to Berkeley would be a good sense, which is that we bundle perceptions together. We don't have to think that there's a material object behind the various impressions that I have of this particular cup that's in front of me. But yet you still, in talking about him, use the word that we inferred the cup. I guess I can see why that would be useful in terms of being able to say that maybe you got it wrong. You inferred that there's real thunder, but maybe it's actually just a movie playing in the other room. You know, there are all these. Yeah. So that is necessarily a reference to memory. Is that right? You need memory. Yeah. Because in order to collect... Right. In fact, it's just a uh, virtual reality cup or something. I'm actually staring at a 3D computer screen. I thought it was a cup. It's showing me all these bundled perceptions that are very much like the kinds of perceptions that I have when I see a three-dimensional cup in other circumstances, but I happen to be fooled in that case. In that sense, talking about it as a cup is an inference because it can be wrong. Is that right for Barclay? No. There's the role of reason involved. And also because we're inferring to a unitary object that we don't actually, what we get in experience, and Barclay says this at some point in the dialogue, strictly speaking, what we call a cup is actually many, many different objects. Because for each sensation associated with a cup, that, under Barclay's idealism, is actually its own separate sensory thing. Many different objects or many different sensations? Why even call it an object? He calls them objects at the end when he's trying to explain his view of the sciences. But they're ideas, right? In his way of speaking mm -hmm. of ideas. And ideas are things. Yes. When we say inference, we're talking about the fact that we don't just have a manifold of sensation. We don't just have the raw sensory data. Something mm -hmm. has to have organized it. So you could think about it in that way as well. But that organizing activity that we've done with the data is above and beyond the raw sensory ideas. So when we've gotten to that level of talking about a cup, we're already away from these specific sensations. 
he's not saying it's illegitimate to talk about cups. He's saying it's illegitimate to reify them as non-mental substances. You treat cups as a sort of way of talking about how our experiences are organized, not as these non-mental things that stand outside of our experience and cause its organization. I think it's worth pointing out because we really, maybe even more than we normally do, really jumped into the middle right away. I would encourage people to go, if you haven't already, listen to Wes's precog on this, which is really outstanding for getting you through the basic structure of the argument. So if you're feeling lost at all, you should jump in to that and then come back. And I think it is worth pointing out that part of what Barclay is is addressing is he's yet another case of trying to address the problem of skepticism, of how we can know things about the world. And he doesn't, in my recollection, talk much about the problem of error and the problem of certainty in the way Mark was just talking about it. And that's one of the things I wanted to address at some point. That problem of skepticism is one that Kant and Hume and it seems like everybody tries to address at some point. He takes a different tack on this and tries to have a tight argument. And the source of what gives unity to the world ends up being God, but not for a sort of simplistic reason. It is a consequence of his conclusion about the nature of our minds. And at some level, being a tried and true empiricist at the deepest level, he goes all in on it and tries to just sidestep the problems of the interaction with the world by just saying, we don't have ideas about anything that we don't perceive, period. Well, no, because it's not that we as individuals or even as a social group have to perceive them. It's somebody has to perceive them. And he pretty quickly gets to all those things, the dinosaurs, all those things that human beings could never perceive, you know, the inside of every physical object. Well, God is perceiving all that stuff. And so that's what makes it persist when individuals are not looking at it. That's what makes science possible. That's what makes real objectivity possible. I don't see how that helps, frankly. I mean, if, if you think there's a problem between how can my individual ideas hook up to an external material object and you think that's a problem, equally, it seems a problem to me since I don't have a good experience of an idea that's in your head. You somehow can do a Vulcan mind meld with me and that can get in my head. I don't have that experience. And yet somehow we think that oh, we, we understand what it is for the infinite God to have experiences, at least just from analogy from our own case. And so somehow these experiences that God has, these perceptions, his ideas enter my head somehow. And, you know, that seems just as weird and problematic to me as the thing he's trying to replace. Before we get into that, let's just talk for a minute about what it means for things to only exist as ideas. That existence is perception. Let's understand what he means by that first. I mean, I think Mark is right that the move is made so that things persist because they are perceived by God. But to understand how they could be communicated between other beings and and that sort of thing, let's understand what it means for everything that exists is perceived. Isn't it purely a negative that he wants to argue that an imperceptible, theoretically imperceptible object, an object that has not been conceived by any mind, is a contradiction in terms. And so that very long argument, which is really the whole of the first and bulkiest of the dialogues is supposed to get rid of matter. And then to be an idea is what's left. That's all I saw is almost a negative definition. You know what an idea is. Just look at your experience. That's yeah. The stuff that you're conscious of right now, that's what ideas are. Everything's like that. 
Right. So we, yeah, we should emphasize for listeners that when we say idea, we don't mean the light bulb going off in your head and saying, I have an insight. It, he's thinking about sensations. And the first step is to say that those things are what we immediately experience. So again, we get rid of any inferences or any abstractions, become pure empiricists and say, okay, let's look at the raw data of experience. That's what I mean by sensible things. And those and only those things are the things that exist. And then the question is how you have access to those things. And he's going to give us a bunch of different arguments about why it is that our access to sensory things is only through these immediate sensory perceptions, which are ideas in our minds. So for instance, when we have a sensation of color, this thing is red. Red is not something out there in the world, but it can only be something in my mind. And he's going to do that with a lot of different other sensory qualities as well. So that's the first step of getting us sort of locked inside our minds with sensible things equaling these ideas. And some of this is shouldn't be unfamiliar. And we've done a whole bunch of podcasts trying to contrast with typical scientific doctrine and are particularly positivist that when we interact with the world, it inevitably involves some factor of our own minds in that. You know, that was Kuhn, that was Quine, that was Kant. We inevitably bring our own experience into our understanding of the world. And one way of looking at Barclay is to say that he's going to dodge the difficulties of having that obvious subjective aspect to our experience. He's going to dodge the difficulties of jiving that with a desire to have an objective world by just saying that's all there is, period, and stop, and using that tack in order to preserve objectivity. And to give us very immediate knowledge of the world. He starts out with this whole thing about heat and pain, which I thought was interesting. And of course, he picks that because pain is an obvious case of something where we have a sensation, but we don't have the illusion that pain is out there independent of us. And so then he wants to get us to associate certain other sensations, which we might think of as being out there in the world with pain in such a way that we'll be convinced that they are subject to the same sort of situation. So for instance, heat, under the sort of the naive realist view, heat is something out there, you know, there's an object and it's hot and I may experience that heat and maybe to my touch, but then there's really heat out there. So Barclay wants us to think about the case of extreme heat where it's painful and where we have this united sensation that we can't disentangle of heat pain. He wants us to ask us how heat could possibly be something mind independent if it's linked so closely to pain, which I thought was a really interesting way to, to start this whole argument. That's another way of addressing the whole perspectival nature. I mean, he could have picked things getting bigger or smaller, the closer you get to them, or he could have picked color, all of which involve a changing character to the sensation that doesn't seem to be rooted in the entity or the character of it itself. In a way, there's no such thing as it without us. And I think most of us have a sort of quasi-skeptical moment in life where we think, oh, so red isn't really, things aren't really red because I can explain it away in terms of electromagnetic radiation bouncing off things, going to my mind, stimulating my optic nerve and causing certain brain states. And I think it's that fundamental intuition that Barclay is, you know, milking as far as he can. Just on that point, just to push on that a little bit, if we just take it that as electromagnetic waves that are bouncing off the uh, object and then we perceive them as red. 
you know, the physicist would say, well, you know, the reason you perceive them as red is just the identification that you've given to certain wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation. And there's nothing mysterious about that. And, if, and in fact, those wavelengths have an integrity of their own that if you were to move towards that object or move away from that object, in fact, the color would change, but in a perfectly understandable way that is related to the speed that you have and the wavelength of that light. But that doesn't mean that that light doesn't have a wavelength. And in fact, it doesn't mean that object that it reflected off of doesn't have inherent characteristics for reflection and absorption and transmission that give rise to that reflection that you perceive as red. The fact that that might change, that's no big deal. And that's not necessarily just you. Right. So when you say that might change, you mean, so for instance, the color of the thing may change depending on how far away we are from it or something like that. That's one of the sort of perspectival. Yeah, I think there's sort of two things there. One is the question of when someone perceives red, there's the question of, is it the same thing as someone else perceiving red? That is, is their machinery functioning in the same way? Is it stimulating their brain in the same magnitude for the same frequencies of electricity and magnetism? There's the other question of whether or not the actual stimulating phenomena is the same striking their eyeballs. And that would depend upon, you know, their relative motion, yada, yada, yada. That's the part that I was referring to, is that changes in that as a result of perspective don't seem to be as complicated as he seems to make them out to be. Yeah, so you're getting at this secondary quality, primary quality distinction. So we might want to say, even if we agree that color is something purely subjective, things like spatiotemporality are objective features of the world, right? Or you could even just call it objective color as a short way of giving the description, Dylan, that you just gave about what it is about the objects and about the light that would make the typical person see a particular color and call it that. So Barclay would say, well, to call that objective color, you're saying to modernize the argument, we're saying that the wavelength, the distance between two peaks of a wave is now what we call color, which of course isn't what we mean by color. That's just a distance between peaks of waves. So for Barclay, those two things may be causally related, but that doesn't mean that we can say that they're the same thing, subjective feel of red and then the thing that's causing it. He puts a lot of weight on what makes intuitive linguistic sense to us. But it seems like once you dive into these things, we don't even really have the language to talk about these things. That the way that Dylan described it, you know, he said there's different wavelengths and when we see them we call it red. Well, we don't see the wavelengths. We see the color. The relationship is causal, yeah. Right. Once you've accepted the idea of secondary qualities, then your intuitions about language, how you refer to them, because you always refer to them as being out in the world. You even refer to a taste. This is tasty, or this music is good. There are all these things that we refer to The language would say, if you just paid attention to the grammar, would say are objective. But then, you know, we think for a second, oh, no, it's actually me that's just having this reaction. And I guess that doesn't cause major confusion for me. And yet, Barclay seems to put a great deal of weight on it by saying, oh, you can't say real objective color. Isn't it absurd to say the real objective color is something you don't see? Well, maybe it sounds that way, but that's because linguistic intuitions are pre-analytical. But he's trying to say that even we would say, right, to say that light causes our sensation of color is not to confuse the subjective sensory feel of a color with the thing that's causing it. So cause and effect are actually two separate things. We can't simply identify them. So he's going to ultimately reject this (laughs) causal relationship. But I think even if we were to accept it, we don't want to identify cause and effect. 
part of the issue with something like color and sound is you see immediately that what we mean by color depends upon our physical entity itself. Even if we say that there is some kind of objective color out there coming in or some kind of pulsing wavefront through matter, we end up associating the character of that through our own hardware and software, so to speak. And at some level, that just perfectly agrees with Barclay that it's not separable from us. But he wants to say more than it's mediated by us. That are, right. He wants to get rid of mediation altogether. Yes, He's trying to yes. go the opposite direction. Yes. So he wants to solve that conundrum by saying that because we only experience the world through ideas, that means that the world only exists as ideas. That's underlying the existence's perception. Yeah. We were getting a little bit at the primary, secondary quality distinction. And again, he thinks primary qualities are subject to just as many problems as secondary qualities. So it's not even the case that we can think of color in the mind as caused by these objective spatiotemporal features of the world, because space and time are also mental things for him. The sorts of arguments he uses there, again, are perspectival. The apparent size of something will change with our distance to it. And That sounds like a really odd argument on the face of it, right? Because we know that the actual size of something (laughs) is staying the same, Mm -hmm. even if the apparent size is changing. But that actual size, according to Barclay, is an abstraction that he rejects. So the making mathematical of space and assigning quantities to it, that's already at the level of abstraction. And At that point, he's always asking us, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. You already agreed that when we talk about sensible things, we're talking about what's immediately sensible. And at the point where we're talking about those abstractions, we're no longer talking about things that are immediately sensible. You were saying before, though, that the objects that we compile, you might say, out of the various sensations, are those immediately sensed or are those immediately sensed? Those are immediately So they're not sensed at all. This is agreed to at the very beginning of the dialogue. The only thing we sense are things that are immediately sensed. Yeah, the raw sense data, the sensible things are made up. Well, but no, I had interpreted him many times in there as not saying that's just a matter of raw sense data, but that we do immediately sense objects. It's just that those objects end up only being ideas and they end up only being bundles of perceptions. Well, once we're talking about bundles, we're actually talking about systematic sets of relationships between ideas. Are these different than notions? <laughs> yes, because the notion is only self and God, right? Yeah. That's a use of reason, but it's supposed to be an extraordinary one that's different than just this compiling. Yeah. We will end up still with a certain kind of dualism at the end between mind and then idea, which is really interesting, between minds or spirits, as he calls them, and ideas to replace the mind-body dualism. I think at this second level, this is the level of abstraction. It's not that it's illegitimate to talk about cups as sensible objects. Mm -hmm. It's only illegitimate if we think of them as things in themselves. But really, when we're talking about a cup, it's a shorthand. You know, you can call it a bundle of sensations if you like, but bundle is a little bit inaccurate, right? Because really, it's a set of systematic relationships between sensations I'm having now, sensations I could have in the future, and so on and so forth. Right. It's a hypothetical bundle. It's not an actual bundle. It's not just remembering all the sensations you have had. It's potential sensations. Wait, I thought he would deny potential anything. 
This is at the level of abstraction. He's denying that there's a reality to these abstractions. Yeah. The articulation for why we have a unity to any of this ends up going back to what Mark brought up earlier, is that that unity comes from the constant active perception of God. Right. I still think you could talk about this is a sensation I could potentially have without saying a potential sensation is like a thing in the ontology. It's an actual sensation by God. Yes. Yes, exactly. Many of which are potentially available to me. Exactly. So it's a neat little ontology. (laughs) This seems like a good place to bring back Mark's question about error. And I confess that to the extent that the world is, the consistency of it is via the constant active work of the mind of God, and that we have access to that through our own perceptions. I got very confused about how we're ever wrong about anything. And let's just, just to restrict ourselves to wrong about physical wrong in our inferences. We're wrong at the level of abstraction. And he does talk about this. Right. The bundling inference that we're grouping this in the uh, cup category when actually it should be in the virtual reality computer object category. That wouldn't solve the problem, right? Just because we realized that we were making a mistake about attribution, we weren't understanding that things existed only as mental entities. Just because we weren't immaterialists and all of a sudden we became immaterialists, that would not solve our problem about making mistakes. Well, there's mistakes we make because we make the wrong inferences. And so, for instance, we might hear a sound and we might attribute it to the wrong cause. But then there's the kinds of mistakes that are something like, say, dreaming, which I think he talks in the end about. Yeah, he's not worried about dreams. He's not worried about dreams. And he talks about distinctness. And there are portions of dreams which are coherent enough, which I think you could argue that they're not distinguishable right from everyday experience. And so you could say, okay. Barkley, how do you account for the difference between reality and dream on that level? And then I think he would talk about, was it distinctness that he talked about or vagueness, something like that? I don't remember the exact words, but you're getting at it that we can tell dreams just by looking at them, that they're dreams. Things don't exhibit the regularities that they do in real life, right? Just try to read a book during your dream then look at the page and then look back at the page and you'll see that it doesn't work. That's how you can tell. He's not worried about Descartes' concern, if that was an actual concern of Descartes, and not just a heuristic to get us to think about more radical kinds of deception. He's not worried about that. And there's a difference, of course, between imagination and, you know, it's not just dreaming, but Mm -hmm. our imaginations. So here's Philonous on page 68 of my edition. The ideas formed by the imagination are faint and indistinct. They have, besides, an entire dependence on the will. So one of the ways to make this distinction is when we're imagining things, we can actually change our ideas via our will in a way that we can't in the real world. But the ideas perceived by sense, that is, real things, are more vivid and clear, and being imprinted on the mind by a spirit distinct from us have not a like dependence on our will. There is therefore no danger of confounding these with the foregoing. And there is as little of confounding them with the visions of a dream, which are dim, irregular, and confused. So that's one way of getting at error. But I think the other aspect and the more common form of error actually, again, it occurs at the level of inference and abstraction. So if we're actually, I'm starting to think about the Theotetus now in the case of misperception. and It seems like that's all just a matter. I mean, if you're saying that objects themselves are constructions, are fictional in some way, then it's just a matter of, we didn't build it the way, on further examination, we decide that we should build it, right? I think that I saw a dog, but I looked closer and it was not a dog, it was a a fox. 
Well, yeah, I mean, there are a whole bunch of different ways in which we make errors. There's that kind of error. There's that you have a stick in the water and it looks like it's bent, but it's not actually bent. So we make the mistake. Right. And then we resolve that mistake. But this is perfect, actually. This is on page 70 to 71, this whole stick in the water example. You can read the quote if you want, but I mean, should he even say that this stick is actually straight, but it appears bent? No, he wouldn't. Seems more likely he would, right. He'd just say, there's the uh, bent perception and then there's the uh, straight perception. And we can talk about a law like way in which when we're going to have one and when we're going to have the other. But to talk about is the stick in itself straight or not, that's nonsensical. Right. So he's actually, they're talking about an oar with one end in the water. And Philonous replies to Hylas's question about that. He's not mistaken with regard to the ideas he actually perceives. So if he's seeing it crooked while it's in the water and straight while it's out, those two ideas are not in conflict. But in the inferences he makes from his present perceptions. So if he infers from it being crooked in the water that it should still be crooked out of the water, he's messed up. So again, this is where the whole idea of inference and abstraction becomes crucial. Thus, in the case of the oar, what he immediately perceives by sight is certainly crooked, and so far he is in the right. But if he thence conclude that upon taking the oar out of the water, he shall perceive the same crookedness, blah, blah, blah. In that respect, he would say, to speak of the state of the oar, regardless of whether it's in the water or not in the water, is a nonsensical statement. It doesn't exist in any way outside of that. Both of those objects exist. No. We're calling but, them but, objects now because... But really, it should just be the phenomena if you were being strictly... No, uh, because the, the things and the phenomena are the same thing. I mean, when we say that there's no real case of that, we're falling into the same trap. There really is the bent or at time one, and there really is the straight or at time two, because the sensations are the real things. The bent or is the real thing? No, because you said the, the only real things are the immediate perception, and those are not objects. Objects are always constructed out of the sense data, out of the immediate perception. It's not that there is a bent or object and a straight yeah. or object. It's that this right. is a complicated object that involves both of those kind of perceptions. And in fact, speaking of that object doesn't even sound like it makes sense, right? You have to have the whole bundle of stuff together. The uh-huh. ore and the water and the sunlight and yada, yada, yada. And then that yields yes. a perception. It is merely a social convenience that we even call them objects at all. It captures something about the regularities our experience comes in due to the orderliness of God to talk about objects. We could not do without that talk. It's too useful. Yeah, so the reason we want to say, well, the or is really straight has to do with the persistence that we claim that's occurring. Mm-hmm. That if I stick the or in the water, what I see is something bent, I pull it out, it's not bent, and maybe I even do some more experiments or do some more looking, and I would say to myself, it's because of the way that the light, you know, my process of seeing and perceiving yields a bent image of the or. You know, now I'm going down this road that... Can we say that? Yeah, can we say image of the ore? Loosely, we can speak that way. And he does speak that way, but here's a place where... So, on page 77, this kind of sheds some light on all this. So, Hyla says, According to you, therefore, the true nature of the thing is discovered by the senses. If so, whence comes that disagreement? Why is not the same figure and other sensible qualities perceived all manner of ways? And why should we use a microscope the better to discover the true nature of the body if it were discoverable to the naked eye? Hylas is saying, look, when we use a microscope, we're trying to get a different perceptual take on the same thing and to discover its truer nature. 
And Fulanus is going to say, no, actually, we're looking at something different with the microscope. <laughs> Strictly speaking, Hylas, we do not see the same object that we feel. In other words, when I'm holding the apple in front of me and I feel it and then see it, inferentially at the level of abstraction, I attribute this to one object. I see the same object that I feel. But he's saying, strictly speaking, no, we don't. Neither is the same object perceived by the microscope, which was by the naked eye. We're looking at two different things. We're looking at two systematically related ideas, as opposed to two different perceptual takes on the same non-mental substance. So when I apply this to the ore, I have the ore, I stick it in the water halfway, I see a bent ore. I pull it out of the water and I lay it along the beach beside the river and it's straight. And he's going to say that those two things are perceptually related, but they are not the same thing. Mark is right to call us out and say, well, really, they're two bundle sets or whatever you want to call them, right? Because an ore is a complex. Right. I just don't think he gives us good vocabulary. To we talk we about really these don't things, have a good frankly. vocabulary. So we'll just call it a bundle. Yeah. So there are two different bundles. So in some sense, the ore in the water is a different thing, speaking loosely than the ore out of the water in the same way that the object perceived by the microscope is different than the object perceived by the naked eye. Whereas Hume would say that we don't have any justification for the causal link between those two things, between the bent ore that I see in the water and then I pull it out and it's not bent. And it's only by an association of moment to moment that I make that conclusion and that that's unwarranted. He's going to just go straight for a metaphysical understanding of it, that the question of knowing is not separate from the question of being here, question of its metaphysical status. I want to not say being because he doesn't want to believe in being either, but the metaphysical character of, of the entity is what is knowable. I mean, there's no distinction between those two things. Right. Our ontology is strictly ideas plus minds, if you want to put it that way, and we're rejecting a certain kind of metaphysics in which there are unknowable things in themselves out there causing our ideas. Yeah, and are we rejecting a distinction between epistemology and ontology? That the radical empiricism that he's representing means that our epistemology and our ontology are one and the same thing. Well, I think they're always somewhat linked, which is just to say ontologies or metaphysical systems where you start to say okay, the world is composed of these things. It's composed of matter and mind, or it's got monads, or it's got whatever entities you want to divide the world up into. Often there are epistemological problems motivating that. So I think they're intricately. But I think you're right that he, in the sense that he's giving his kind of a radical epistemologectomy, right? He's just trying to cut away the problem altogether. I mean, SAS Percipi, yeah. Means that perception is how we know things. So what something is, is what is known. And so that's all I mean by him obliterating that distinction. I feel like he doesn't know what his <laughs> ontology is, that this talk of objects is still troubling me, that it seems if you take objects as just bundles, then it's a matter of really social convention and utility of the moment, whether you say that the ore in the water and the ore out of the water are two different objects two different bundles, or they're the same object. I mean, you can understand, once you understand his system, that both of those are true in a way, that it's really all just a bunch of connected perceptions. And to even pick out something as an object is merely a matter of 
pointing out some regularities, exactly. some apparent regularities in perception. So in a way that his ontology then is just everything is this mass of experience. But then the way yeah. I've just described, he's a nominalist about objects, that there right. really aren't even objects. But yet he says, essay is percipi. So common sense tells me I perceive the book in front of me. And he affirms many times, yes, that really is an object. It's just, you know, you were wrong in thinking it was a mind independent object. It's a mind dependent object, but it's still an object. So he seems to think that his ontology accords with the everyday right. tables and chairs and blah, blah, blah. But if you push it even a little bit, he becomes a nominalist. I think you're, he's definitely a nominalist. I mean, and you're getting at a very little subtle trick he does at the beginning. He makes us think that he's on the side of common sense. And he's, yes, if it's, you know, if yeah. it's a sensible thing, I have immediate access to it. But it turns out that's not really what he means. And that's why he does his little introductory thing where he gets Hylas to agree to all these ground rules where aren't sensible things just the sensible qualities that's the critical move and aren't we going to rule out inference as being part of this that's the critical part where he's essentially boiling everything down to raw sense data and getting rid of abstraction getting rid of inference but on a common sense level raw sense data isn't what we mean we think we perceive things which are already constructed or theory laden or blah 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 you know, the rationalist would chime in and say there's already a lot of organizing going on at the level of object, at our common sense level. They would accuse Barclay of when you boil things down to these raw sense data. Well, that's not what we have. They might say, well, actually, raw sense data are the abstraction. When I talk about some mm -hmm. red point in my visual field, I'm actually you know, performing a certain kind of abstraction there. What I perceive are things in their organized state. Right. Not to mention sort of taking a sliver in time that we're going to do Henri Bergson in just a couple episodes from now. And that was his big complaint about this kind of empiricism is that even to, in the same way you were just talking about the red point in my vision, like even if you tried to focus on that, you have really having a series of perceptions over time. Right. And what? So you're going to try to get even more granular about it and say, no, no, no. I mean, at time T1, you know, well, that's not something we experience at all. We don't experience things in a moment. Right. He also seems to oversimplify our perception of objects as, you know, we immediately say, well, I see the table there. But the activity of pulling out the table out of all the possible sensory experience that we have, ignoring the fact that what we mean by a table might have a kind of functional abstraction, which he just wants to deny, is a very complicated thing. And I think that you can get a sense of how complicated it is if you put yourself in the place of someone perceiving with a microscope, for instance, or just all of a sudden seeing a whole new landscape in which they don't have a clear way to identify, separate one thing from another. So immediately, very quickly, there starts to be the activity of trying to distinguish this from that one object from another. And then the question becomes, is this a bundle of objects that really is features of one thing? Are these leaves and branches that really are one tree? Or is it a bunch of different trees? You have the same kind of thing happening in the science that's rising at his time with microscopes and with looking at matter at smaller and smaller levels of just trying to say, well, what are those entities? What are those things as a way of classifying them? But 
before you even do that, you're just sort of in a, a morass of... The blooming, buzzing confusion. Yes. And William James's. Yeah. And so, in some ways, it goes to the claims of people that our experience of the world is mind-mediated and theory-laden. That is, that we bring articulation to our perceptions of the world, and we get that, that articulation in lots of different ways. But the way he proceeds with his argument and trying to refute Hylas, in some ways he seems to not take the problem of turning perceptions into objects as seriously. We were talking about bundles mm -hmm. of, of notions, but he doesn't really articulate how that, what that means and what would constitute a bare sense experience. In some ways it seems like it would be like you wouldn't even be able to label it. Yeah. You know, at the point where we have experience where we can even say we're having experiences, we already have a lot of inference and conceptual stuff going on, and this is Kant's basic point. So it wouldn't even be accurate to call the manifold or raw sense data to call that experience. It doesn't rise to the level of experience. That's one critique you can... So the problem we're having with ontology here, I think, is mirrored in the overall problem of what is it that we perceive? And he wants to stress that we do not perceive the objects, we perceive our own sensations. It's a common starting point. He got it from Locke. It's also been imputed to Descartes that in the meditations, Descartes thinks he can retreat into himself and just contemplate his sensations. And that's what experience is, is there's inner sense, there's outer sense, but even experience of the outer world comes through inner sense. And you were in your precog, Wes, sort of blurring that together intentionally, I think, with the light beams hit things and that activates our sense organs, neurons and our heads are doing. So there's physical things in our brains. I was saying that's one of the motivating, uh -huh. you know, he's motivated by some of those skeptical arguments we mentioned, but also by the arrival of the science. I think these guys are, we're all into perception and they were, you know, made scientific contributions to it. Why do you think linguistically, you would get out of this picture of light is hitting my eyes, which makes something happen in my brain, to I am perceiving something in my brain. I am perceiving my own ideas, as opposed to saying either I am perceiving the object through the medium of these things in my brain, blah, 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 blah. You know, in other words, not seeing the thing in my brain is a representation of what's out there, but is merely the sensory means by which I get at the external world which is not his view or the view of any of his contemporaries that I was just describing, or just say, look, our way of talking about these things, just the same problem that you know I was talking about with colors, is going to apply to perception as a whole, that our intuitions are going to be off, that they are pre-theoretical, that once we get into science at all, the question, what is it we perceive, is sort of a, you know, in the absence of a particular practical context, you know, do you see the car that is coming at you? Do you see the line that is coming at in that sense, yes, we can say, I perceive the car, I perceive the lion. Well, but when you get into a, th yeah. a theoretical context, there is no correct answer to that question. We neither perceive the external objects, nor do we perceive our own ideas. The whole grammar of perception, well, something is off okay. about that. Yeah, you can talk about the grammar of perception, and but I think we all agree our access to the world is mediated. I mean, even cognitive scientists, they, <laughs> they want to talk about how the brain builds an angle on a table, much less the table. They want to talk about how it reconstructs it. It's just if you, even using the word mediated implies that some sort of immediate access is possible, but that this thing is in the way, or maybe what we have immediate access to is the mediating thing, which is then in turn connected to the, like, 
just the word, the dichotomy between mediated and immediate doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I'm not so sure because I think the causal theory that Barclay rejects is actually the promising one that we want to keep, right? We want to say our experience of the world is caused by the world. It's caused by our interaction with the world. We have sensations that are caused by objects or light you know, or vision. They are caused by the system of perception of which the object is one element. Right. They're caused, you know, so for instance, our seeing things is caused by light bouncing on things right. and going into our eyes. And yeah. Barclay gives a lot of ingenious arguments. And also, by the way, you just mentioned, you know, well, why not say the sensations are an act, a purely mental act that take something non-mental as the object. But he rejects that for the same reason that he's going to reject all of these things, which is that he doesn't see how you can link up the mental and the non-mental in any satisfying way, right? And I think that's a real problem. I think we have to stick with some sort of causal slash representation theory of cognition. But to say how it works is really, really difficult. (laughs) And he's just jamming us on that difficulty. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code EXAMINE. Now, Dylan, you're our resident webmaster. Tell me, do you feel like we have an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we have one now, but when we started this, gosh, almost five years ago now, Yep, it was really a big learning curve for getting something that looked the way you wanted it to look. And when I look through this Squarespace stuff, I'm really impressed with how design-oriented and forward, modern-looking web design it is. So We have spent a lot of time on the design on the site and a lot of that stuff we have to kind of create from scratch or we wait for new plugins and designs to be made available to us and then we have to tweak them. Whereas it looks like, you know, with Squarespace, you've got a lot of really great templates that you can use right from the start. Yeah, and I've been very impressed with the integrated design of each of them. They're, they're unique ones, but they seem tailored to individual goals. You know, they have them for restaurants and podcasts and blogging and media outlets. And even just going over the Squarespace site, they have a lot of neat features of just navigation that bring the site alive in a way that I was surprised by. It seems to me that they've been very conscious about how to make new experiences happen within a web browser. Have questions? Need help? Squarespace has your back with their amazing 24 by 7 customer care team. And how about the price? Only $8 a month with a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So, what are you waiting for? Go ahead and start your trial today. No credit cards required. Go to squarespace.com. Make sure to use the offer code EXAMINE. You'll get 10% off your first purchase and show support for the Partially Examined Life. And now back to the show. Let me follow up, Mark, though, just with one thing you were getting at, because you were kind of making actually one of Barclay's points as well. You were saying, but the whole idea of mediation doesn't make any sense. I thought you were saying mediation or lack thereof. Yes. Well, that's a different point. then. But so you could go in a different direction. You could go in the materialist direction with this. Right. And there are people who try and do this these days. In a way, they're involved in a Barclayan project, which is to get rid of any 
mind-body problem or mind-matter epistemological problem by saying everything is reducible to matter. And often they're going to take this line against the idea of mediation. So, for instance, Daniel C. Dennett gets a little into that. This is opening a giant can of worms that we're not going to be able to treat. But we've talked about this in other contexts that if you're a materialist, then you have to somehow explain qualia. You have to explain that we have a perspective on things. And so maybe you'll say, well, there's just one kind of stuff, but it looks different from different ways. So there's a point of view that it's not positing another kind of metaphysical entity. It's not adding something to the ontology, but it's just saying, well, there's no God's eye view of things that you have to be in a certain spot to say something about anything. You can abstract from that and talk about temperatures and mass and things like that. But if you're, and I think even Dennett is perfectly willing to admit that as sort of scientifically useless as it ultimately might be, that we always want to get toward the objective measures of things, that we start at a point of view. If you try to say, well, what does that mean metaphysically? That doesn't look so different to me from Spinoza. You know, we had our whole episode on him who tried to bring together mind and matter by saying, well, it's all one stuff, but it has different aspects. And in fact, it has probably has many more than those two aspects that we can't even perceive. And that's something that Barclay just doesn't want any part of, right? Yeah. And I think the part of the problem is it's a solution that still leaves us in the dark. We're just still admitting that it's all one thing and there's two different aspects of it, but it's... Aspects or points of view or something. Yes. We don't know how they're related exactly. And we don't get objectivity back. Well, you would get objectivity back because you're saying they're aspects of the same thing. Yeah, but we don't know. Right. He wants to maintain objectivity and know what that objective point of view is. Those are twin goals. Right. Yeah. You got to give it to him for the simplicity of his system. That's just it only looks simple because he doesn't actually delve or think we (laughs) can or need to delve into, again, this relationship between our individual ideas and these God ideas. For instance, we are just saying that it's a practical matter how we distinguish this from that, how we break the mass of experience into objects. So you could say that our practical concerns feed into the fact that I consider this a book and this a table and don't bundle my perceptions in ways radically different than that, that all human beings sort of do it the same. Well, then how do these ideas that we have and these bundles of them, these actual experiences that we have where I experience the book that we want to say, we experience the object, how do those compare to the God experiences that support these things. I think that while it's decisive for him that God is the way in which all perceptions are able to be, you know, the world is a perception in God's view. I think it probably is a little bit of a mistake to focus on God as somehow instilling those ideas in us, because I don't think that's quite what he means. I think it's a little bit closer to Leibniz in the sense that the world is an active thought or perception of God, but the The way it's manifest for us is by consistency, by all the things that he calls a common sense, by all the things that we normally would associate with entities being called entities, that they persist in time, that I turn away from the table and I turn around back and it's still there. All those things are the ways in which I think for Barclay would be evidence for this perception of God as being the thing that holds the universe together. 
Yeah, it's God's will. God, yeah, yeah. laws of nature are really manifestations yeah. of yeah. God's volition, ordering these ideas for us. But you're pointing out then fundamental differences between the human point of view on these things and the God point of view on these things. In fact, God doesn't even have a point of view. God sees all things from all yeah. possible aspects. Yeah. He doesn't have to bundle at all, yep. but yet he he's aware of all the bundle. potential bundles. He's yep. aware of all the potential bundles. He constructs us to bundle bundle them in certain ways. That's what's important. He's providing the grounds for the possibility of bundling by okay. his will. His will, you know, all the little machinations and string pulling of his, of his will is what produces that orderly. Let me just finish the consequent of the if-then statement. We were pointing out all the differences, but yet the whole reason he introduces God in the first place is because he wants to set up an analogy. He wants to say everything is mental. We know from looking at our experiences that everything, all the uh, tables and chairs and all that are mental entities. And yet, oh, they don't disappear. There's this orderliness. It doesn't look like it's just a matter of individuals that are seeing things makes them appear or something like that. There's an apparent objectivity to it. So there must be a mind. Not just some kind of force out there, but a mind that is causing these things to happen. It's relying on an analogy between God's mind and our mind. And then at the same time saying, oh, but God's mind is not something that we can understand at all and pointing out all the differences. I think you can't have it both ways. Either God is so different that this analogy between his mind and our mind doesn't work, or he's similar enough that we should be able to make sense of these things, of God's perspective. We should be able to talk about that. But isn't it just the difference between the finite and the infinite in his case? Exactly. Once he gets to the statement that everything is immaterial, that everything is mind, then God ends up being, in some ways, a kind of gloss for the thing that holds all things together. A kind of abstraction, like Descartes' version of the infinite? Yeah, this yes. is the interesting thing. He sort of squeezes out abstraction out of the sensible world, and then he shoves it all into this other noumenal entity, this spirit. So we still get this sort of rationalist apparatus, but at the very periphery of the system. The reason I was objecting to this you know, is that he says very positive things about God's nature. So, for instance, against Spinoza, that the Spinozists think that God is not a mind that has all the ideas that are the things of the universe, but that God actually is all the things of the universe. But that's just a manifest repugnance because of all these things we know about the simplicity of God and the fact that creation and destruction is apparently going on among the things of creation. And so those couldn't be parts of God. So he has very positive things to say. With no real grounding that I can see, other than revelation. Well, I do think that he is basically an apologist in this respect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that in the precog, Wes mentioned that he wrote these dialogues when he was in his 20s. And in fact, basically all of his philosophical writing, he wrote in his early to mid-20s. And then he spent the rest of his life as a bishop <laughs> and didn't... I guess he revised... There was an important revision of the dialogues that happened in his middle age where he revised it and it made some important additions. He was a true believer and in some ways he was like a, a faithful Kant, right? He's trying to be an empiricist but save the perceptions of the world in some claim of objectivity of the world and in this case for God. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap here with Kant. And of course, Kant was accused of being a subjective idealist and had to do a second edition of the Critique of Pure Reason where he tried to distinguish his transcendental 
So Kant said, you know, well, actually, I'm a transcendental idealist, but empirical realist. And we don't need to go into exactly what that means. But he had to defend himself against charges of subjective idealism. And then, of course, Kant's system led into the German idealism of Fichte and Hegel, who, instead of using God, well, with Fichte, it just begins with the noumenal ego spirits themselves. It looks very Leibnizian that form the grounding that matter no longer is there for. And then for Hegel, it's Geist, so world spirit. So you can do this in a lot of ways. You're looking for some grounding. You know, you can go the matter route, you can go all these different routes, and they're Mm -hmm. all interesting and they all have different advantages and problems associated with them. Yeah. And what they have in common with them is that they're all a bucket or a measure with respect to which you are able to align everything else. So in a funny way, they're all rational in that respect. That is, you have one fundamental measure that's going to be the thing that holds the whole and you're going to divide everything else up with respect to it. And it's only in that way that you can have a ratio, be rational about it. And in that way, Barclay is, even despite his protestation, is being rational in this respect. He makes the bucket God, and he wants to insist that all of the law-like behavior and saving of science is still there, because that is a metaphysical move that he makes regarding our epistemology. And in a funny way, by the end of it, you want to ask him, okay, well, so what, right? Does this change anything about the way that I'm going to, for instance, pursue in science or pursue in morality? And I think the answer is not much. No, no, it's it's that his aims are theological, if anything. Yeah. So at the very beginning of the book, in the preface, he says what his main goal is. He says, if the principles which I here endeavor to propagate are admitted for true, the consequences which I think evidently flow from thence are that atheism and skepticism will be utterly destroyed. Many intricate points made plain, great difficulties solved, several useless parts of science retrenched, speculation referred to practice, and men reduced from paradoxes to common sense. Those are his twin goals, atheism and skepticism, destroying them both. Since you brought up that he wrote these works in his 20s, it just brought to mind a little bit from the end of the biography part of his entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy that talks about, so this work was from 1713, his other famous work, Principles of Human Knowledge, was 1710. In 1734, he was made Bishop of Cloyne, returned to Ireland. It was here that Barclay wrote his last, strangest, and best-selling in his own lifetime philosophical work. Cirrus from 1744 has a threefold aim to establish the virtues of tar water, a liquid prepared by letting pine tar stand in water, as a medical panacea to provide scientific background supporting the efficacy of tar water and to lead the mind of the reader via gradual steps toward contemplation of God. Has anybody ever, (laughs) I'm just wondering if anybody in any class has ever read this work and whether laughing is a sufficient response. Yeah, I doubt. I'm sure uh, Barclay scholars have read it, but that's about it. Not that you can't drink the tar water Kool-Aid despite your philosophical acumen. When people turn from the philosophical, theoretical matters to actual facts, things can get tricky. He made a legitimate contribution to science as well, though, as did many philosophers of this era. So you can't accuse them of not being scientific. And Descartes invented analytic geometry and did lots of other scientific work and so on. So I I don't think it's a matter of simply having one's head in the clouds. All these guys were also scientists. All right, so I'm looking for a adventurous listener to uh, read the Tarwater thesis and uh, write a little report of it for us, of how, how his scientific acumen is shown off in there. There are two things left over so far that I wanted to talk about. 
One was talking a little bit more about abstraction and making clear how his objection to abstraction, you know, his sort of proof against abstraction works and why it's a linchpin for his theory. I feel like we sort of danced around that. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is related to abstraction, is just the question of likeness. And I'll explain that more after we talk about abstraction. Right. He wants to make sure that we don't reify our abstractions, clearly. He wants to make sure that, look, red itself is not an object in the ontology. But clearly, we do abstractions a lot, and we need to in talking about even objects at all is a kind of abstraction, you know, if they're not reified. So what's the issue? I would point to two things. One would be physical objects like tables, where I mean by a table something more than just the table that's in my kitchen. And also mathematical abstractions like triangles. Let's just pick triangles. Well, let's start with his, so on page 29, one of his arguments against abstractions is the fact that he can't frame abstract ideas. Without having instances of them, right? I can't frame abstract ideas at all, quote unquote. <laughs> it is plain. I cannot frame them by the help of pure intellect, whatsoever faculty you understand by those words. In other words, when he says ideas again, he has something very specific in mind. It's not to say that we don't employ abstractions. It's just that... I guess I'm not understanding what frame means. What would be an example of something I can't that have I can an abstract idea? And so when conceive. I when okay. I think about yeah. triangles in general, yeah, that's not an idea of triangle in his sense because an idea yep. again is a, something with specific perceptual content. Yeah, okay. So it's just what I said that you can't have an abstract idea. You always have an instance of it. When you think of table, you never think of table as a form or an idea. You might imagine a table like the one in my kitchen. And your activity of abstraction would be a kind of, you would make some argument about, well, that's an instance of what a table is. And then you start talking about forms and yada, yada, yada. Same thing with a triangle, that whenever you're doing a geometrical proof, you end up thinking through instances of triangles, not triangleness or triangle in general. And this argument comes about because he's just given an argument saying that primary qualities like extension are susceptible to the same sorts of skeptical objections as secondary qualities. And then Hylas says, what? Is it not an easy matter to consider extension and motion by themselves abstracted from all other sensible qualities? Because he's just said, you know, again, uh -huh. if I'm at a different distances from the thing, it looks larger or smaller. And Hylas is saying, well, that's absurd because it's still five feet long, whether or not you're, you know, and that's what we mean when we say abstraction. We can give, we're abstracting away from its apparent size and saying, okay, here's its real size. And that's when he goes into, yes, he says, I acknowledge, Hylas, it is not difficult to form general propositions and reasonings about those qualities. He's not saying those aren't true. So reasonings about those qualities without mentioning any other. And in this sense, to consider a treat of them abstractedly. So he's saying, yes, we can treat of things abstractedly. But how does it follow that because I can pronounce the word motion by itself, I can form the idea of it in my mind, exclusive of body, and so on and so forth. So again, it goes to the specific sense of an idea, and ideas are the only real thing. So if I can't frame, if I can't do abstraction by framing ideas, then they're not real. But this, so this is an interesting move. So he's saying motion doesn't exist because I can't frame it. It's the same thing as saying, because motion is not an idea in the way he means idea as a perception. Motion is, you know, it doesn't exist. We can say true things about motion as the orderly interrelation of ideas. 
but we can't reify motion and we can't reify red. You can't say motion is a motion is a notion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, can we say, so when we say something like motion is conserved. Yeah. We can form general propositions. He's anomalous. So we're making these abstract propositions, which are inferential and which will help us predict the future. So when we come up with our scientific theorems, this will be useful to us. In fact, he has a, I think in, um, there is another treatise. He gives what's called an instrumental account of science. So these theorems will help us make predictions about future events and be useful in other ways. And so it's not that they're bogus. They're only bogus, again, if you try and reify something to correspond to them. Because what's actually producing all that regularity is just the will of God. Well, and so in the case of the conservation of motion, the way you would get out of it is you would say, well, look, motion doesn't actually exist. What you have is all the momentum of individual objects, and that momentum is always conserved. That motion is always conserved. But what I mean by that is I'm sort of speaking too loosely there. In the end, I'm speaking of specific motions of specific objects, and that's the thing that's conserved. It's not this abstract entity called motion that doesn't exist. Well, suppose I tried to give some metaphysical account of the conservation of momentum Mm -hmm. and say there's this thing out there that explains it. That's what he's objecting to. The conservation of momentum can be boiled down to predictable interrelationships. When I do something with the billiard balls, I can expect them to behave in this way, but I don't need to come up with any metaphysical explanations of that behavior. I can just treat that regularity as a regularity. I can form my abstractions. I mean, I can treat of them abstractly to use his language, but I can't frame an abstract idea that corresponds to something real in the world. So it's nominalism. Yeah. The reason that I got to think about likeness in this case is it seems to be an account of a kind of radical particularity about the world. And I guess that's just a monster's empiricism. That, I think that's know, a good even, way to put it, yeah. Yeah, even though there are regularities that are born out of the mind of God that we can find, in the end, the world is only particulars. So, it made me wonder about what likeness and what saying something is like another thing means to Berkeley. Because that's one of the avenues that we have for abstraction, that we begin speaking of kinds of things. That what I mean by the abstraction of a table is that this object here is like that object in these sorts of ways, because they're the same kind of thing. And this dog is like that dog, or this you know animal is like that animal, and that likeness will lead me to calling them a dog. But for Berkeley, dogs don't exist as entities, there are particular animals that exist, and maybe I call them dogs, but dogs don't exist. Just like, you know, in some ways, human beings don't exist. Yeah, the abstract idea dog. Yes, 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 the abstract idea dog, the abstract idea human. It's a deep denial of the notion of kind. And the notion of kind would be, you would get to that through likeness. And so, it's an even deeper disagreement with someone like Aristotle than I even thought at the beginning. By asserting that radical particularity, there are no kinds. There are only individuals ever. And none of them are really like one another. 
because there's no likeness and because there isn't same. We can say they are like one another if we understand that likeness means this systematic sets of possible sequences of ideas based on God's will as opposed to and he does have a little talk about identity at some point which Dylan I think speaks towards what you're what you're saying here he sort of rails against the idea of metaphysical identity yes, that's right there being this metaphysical sense of likeness I think you're, you're right exactly so there would be no kinds especially in the sense of kinds existing but there would be likeness in the sense of regularities that were expressed in the mind of God that we could discover or we could lay claim to or something like that. I can't help but thinking that nobody who's not an Aristotelian would have this reaction to his nominalism about kinds that you, you seem shocked by, that he thinks that similarity between different perceptions is a basic part of experience. And so being able to talk about how all these different animals that are dogs are similar and yield similar perceptions when you examine them that the cats don't is of no trouble for him whatsoever. And consequently, all the science of finding what the genetic pattern that keeps those and you know, how to breed dogs and all this stuff. What is there left after you go through that exhaustive account and can write then a whole book on what the different types of dogs are and the different breeds and how they are different from other animals. What are you missing that Aristotle would grant us <laughs> in terms of a metaphysically real sort of kind that is not there in the empirical data? Well, he's yeah. accusing you of being an Aristotelian. Don't. I noticed that I was just going to, I was just going to let that go by this wayside. <laughs> you can just say, we'll do an Aristotle episode later and no. defer that answer if you no, no i i was actually just genuinely asking the question i wasn't trying to i see why you're asking that question in, in the form you're asking it mark i guess even before you went to trying to defend aristotelian kinds and i admit i was appealing to that i guess i would happily grant that aristotle makes a move in wanting to talk about kinds as existing that barclay just denies but I think that part of the root of that is the question of likeness. And I guess I was trying to sort out what likeness meant for Barclay because of the radical individuality of everything. Because part of likeness means that you are acknowledging that they are distinct. There is a this and a that. But they're like one another in that they have something in common. And that, that something in common is part of them. So even to have an experience, right... You know, we'll have a sequence of sensations over time that we have to collect up and think of as related. In fact, again, we make what Barclay thinks of the as the illegitimate step of attributing all of them to some material mm -hmm. thing outside of us. So we can do that. We have a faculty for doing that. And I think, again, Barclay thinks that's reason or the inferential faculty. It's just that when we do that reasoning, it's not that we've intuited the material object. That's one way of looking at reasoning, the function of reason here. Or it's not that we've intuited the Eidos or the Platonic idea or the Aristotelian form. It's just that we have a reasoning faculty which can perform all these functions. And luckily, there's an order there to be intellected, let's say, in the first place because God's providing it. You've got God rigging everything at one end and then the, mm -hmm. the intellect sensitive to that on the other end but again to be intellectually sensitive to all that stuff doesn't mean that what we call real in the world 
is abstract. It's worth pointing out that the God here is not a clockwork God that you might see in Descartes or even in Leibniz, in that the God here is a kind of willing, active, that the universe is an active state of God's mind, as opposed to something that's set in motion by God, that having created all the matter and all the ways in which constituents of the universe interact and starts it going, that then it always goes in a certain way, a deterministic way, right. as a kind of first mover. That's not his picture of God. One of the things that he preserves is this sort of constant, active, willful God. You know, in our typical day-to-day thinking, we, we might think, you know, when one billiard ball hits the other and causes it to move, that one material thing has acted on another material thing. Yep. Which creates its own metaphysical problems, at least it did for the early early moderns. So Barclay gets rid of that. There is no acting. The bill, one billiard ball is just an idea or, again, combination or collection of ideas in association with another. So that, again, and this sounds sort of Humean ultimately, because Hume is a skeptic about causality. So for Barclay, there is no causality in the sense of one thing acting on another. There are just regularities. And those regularities, the only real causality that's going on is God constantly supplying those those ideas to us, constantly through his will, implanting them in us, let's say. His picture is clear enough to me that the ideas are all passive. And this is supposed to be something that is given by experience. And Hume picked up on the same thing from Barclay, of course, really. And you can give causality as, as the prime example that we think this is something that's happening behind the scenes. But actually, no, there's no action between the different things. They're all inert. But yet he thinks that we have an experience of ourselves as active. And that's how we get this notion of spirit through an immediate experience of myself and the fact, the phenomenon you were talking about, that I can, say, summon up something in my imagination. I can form an intention. There are all these mental activities that give us the idea of activity. And that is supposed to be different. Empirically, just looking at our experiences is supposed to set up this sharp division between the spirits that are active and everything else that is inactive. And then, of course, from then, that's the prime reason that why there has to be something because you know nothing can affect anything else. So there must be a God. There must be an active principle behind it. There must be an active spirit making all this happen. I understand what the view is. It still seems really bloody arbitrary to me. Like why you would think that, you know, I feel like I have an experience when I see one thing smacking another that I've experienced the, you know, one being causally efficacious on the other. And I could understand, we've talked about this in other contexts, you know, how I could be fooled about that. Maybe actually it's a, I'm watching a cartoon that there really aren't two objects in the physical world that are bouncing against each other. They're just two images that were set up by the programmer of the cartoon or whatever. And the fact that there is that distinction between real causality and apparent causality within my experience makes me think that there is an active principle going on there. Right. I see where there's room for skepticism, but I also see why there's the same room for skepticism. You might think that you've just summed up an image of the unicorn in your mind, but do you really have that? I mean, you really just, you, you experience the same sense of constant conjunction. Maybe I have a feeling that I'm trying to summon up something and then it happens. And as we just got out of Anscombe, 
we don't even really have a consistent feeling about intentions in this way. So I think that the workings of the mind of my own experience of myself are just are equally mysterious. They're equally open to skepticism as the skepticism about causality in the external world. I think his whole foundation for active versus passive is groundless. Hmm. (laughs) I mean, did you buy any of that, that everything in the world is passive except for spirits, which are active? It's not a matter of buying it. I mean, I don't buy any of these. (laughs) To me, they're speculative. You know, it's like having a model of the atom to explain something, except these models, which is what they are, are much more speculative. And they sound, of course, bizarre, but I enjoy that bizarreness. (laughs) For me, it just illustrates there's a lot of problems to saying that things are active and affect each other. There's a lot of philosophical (laughs) problems that that creates. So there's a beauty to someone who just gets rid of that in one stroke. Mm -hmm. Now, do I buy that? The system? No. Or Leibnizian system? No. But it's really illustrative. And then it's really important when you get to someone like Hume and then ultimately Kant and Schopenhauer, you can see everything they're doing is predicated on these types of concerns, the concerns motivating Barclay. In fact, you see in Schopenhauer, you know, causality is something that we're projecting the way our will works onto the world. But in general, mm-hmm. do I sympathize with our qualia and subjective features of our consciousness being immediately accessible to us in a unique way, I have to admit that I still haven't been disabused of that by people like Daniel C. Dennett. You know, I side with Sartre to some extent. I think there is, uh, we know our own thoughts and feelings. That's at least related to the active-passive distinction I was just railing against. Despite my griping here, I did enjoy this quite a lot. The reason I thought we were talking about abstraction in the first place is not just to have an open-ended discussion of what abstraction might be in natural kinds and things like that, but of the particular use that he makes of it in this master argument that I feel like we have to at least throw out there explicitly before we're done here, which is that just as all these other kinds of abstraction are so vicious, that when I imagine a table, one of the properties the table has, this image of the table, is that it is being imagined by me. And... He thinks that getting rid of the me part is a vicious abstraction in just the same way that pulling red off of the objects is a vicious abstraction. He even calls it the master argument in his previous work that he really rested a lot on this. This is why we cannot conceive of anything that is unconceived. And he puts it just that simply. Try to conceive of something unconceived. Ha, you're conceiving it. It is a manifest repugnance to have something right. that is unperceived, unconceived by anybody in particular. And that is and Mar- yes. just one of the most ridiculous arguments I've ever heard. Well, I don't think it's ridiculous. It follows if you reject abstractions. The only way around that argument, the only way around his whole thing, I think, is you have to reject his nominalism. You have to reject his refusal to accept abstract entities. And I think that's what Dylan also was getting at when you accused him of being an Aristotelian. Unless you do that, I think that follows. The only way to get around that master argument is to say, well, no, we can abstract. We can say, yes, even though I right now am specifically imagining this, I'm imagining a general situation in which there are no observers. But one thing about that abstraction is that you certainly could abstract the color red and talk about red, but that doesn't mean that you think that redness exists as an entity. You could just as consistently insist that only things are red. This is Barclay's point of view. 
Well, yeah, but it's also Aristotle's point of view in this respect. But Aristotle's take is that that's why you have material. There are still formal entities, even though if there's specifics as well, right? So you take any given thing and it's a combination of matter and form. It's not like the things are participating in abstract platonic forms. That's right. Yes. Still saying that forms are entities. Maybe that's a complicated question as to whether... I think in Aristotle's case, it's going to be complicated. I mean, how that plays out. Maybe Aristotle is another way of getting around all that. What he calls the universally received maxim. Again, this is page 28 of my edition. Everything which exists is particular. It's italicized. I don't know if it was italicized in the original, but he's, <laughs> he might as well put that in all caps. <laughs> Here's the linchpin of my argument. <laughs> no, it's not a universally received maxim, <laughs> which Barclay, of course, must have known. Because every philosopher before him had, again, the question of Aristotle is complicated, but certainly Plato and many other philosophers were driven to assert that there were such things as abstract entities to avoid precisely the kind of line of argument that you get with Barclay. In Barclay's case, just going back to abstraction, if I say that's a triangle, how does Barclay parse that out? It's a matter of these regularities of perceptions and memory. and Right. You're contemplating a concrete yield sign, let's say. You can pick out why that is a triangle. Obviously, it's not an ideal triangle, but why it would be called a triangle because it has a lot of perceptual qualities in common with other ones. That you remember. So you're making these connections. That's called association. But he was just going to refuse to make the next move, which is that that characteristic that I say is in common with all of those things that I say are a triangle. That's not an entity. In the it's world. certainly not an entity. And when we talk about the danger of abstraction, it is that is the move to saying that when we speak of such a thing, while it may be makes sense, when we make the move to saying, well, well, that characteristic that's in common is an entity such that I begin to ask the question, well, where do triangles exist? Where is the triangle? That kind of talk is not common sense. That's one of the ways in which he's returning us to common sense is saying, look, it doesn't make any sense to talk about the triangle. No such thing exists like that because they're all particulars. This is supposed to be in our metaphysics track, even though if we had done it back when we did our Hume episode and our Plato on epistemology, it would have been, you know, our knowledge track. But it really is for something that's called a metaphysics text. There's not a lot of metaphysics actually in the text. Because he's an empiricist. (laughs) Right. It's a lot of epistemological argumentation from empiricist grounds to the fact that then everything is ideas. But then what does that actually mean as a metaphysical position? Ideas are spirits, right? Two types of things. He starts talking about spirits, and we don't really know anything about spirits except that they have ideas. We just have an intuitive experience of what it is for a spirit to have ideas, because I have ideas all the time. And that's supposed to somehow yield insight into what the relation between God and the many, many ideas that are unperceived by any mortal right now, even though I don't think it helps at all in that. I think he uses the fact that we're now talking about God as, I don't know if an excuse, because it just never even comes up in the dialogue. It's not like Hylas asks about it, like give a whole uh, metaphysical rundown of what it is like to be in a universe 
that is made only of ideas and where God supports everything. He doesn't have a lot to say about that other than doesn't this accord very well with scripture and then starts talking about different conceptions of God that wouldn't accord as much with scripture along the way. Alternative grounds like matter that, again, would not accord as well with the preconception. So he's being an apologist. He's not being a metaphysician. It's a little more robust than that, Mark, in that through the avenue of his empiricism, that in S.A.S. Percipi, the metaphysical claim is coming in about what it means for something to exist. So things don't have being. They just exist. Being would be an abstraction. So he would just deny that outright. And things exist insofar as they are perceivable and perceived. And then, you know, you go back through this argument, this claim of immaterialism, the argument for immaterialism that he gets. But that all is really tied to his empiricism and the way he wants to try to hold on to objectivity and empiricism at the same time. He makes those ontological claims, those metaphysical claims, along the way. It's a denial of anything other than empirical reality. Well, like just the fact that he throws in essence right in there, right? We we had this a couple episodes ago where Sartre threw out that term and you wanted to interrogate him about it. Well, I want to do the same with Barclay. We've got that master argument that tells us that anything that exists has to be something that is well, it is perceived, it is at least conceived, it's hard to know the difference between those things when you're talking about God, but that there is a mental aspect to it, and that's just because of our lack of ability to robustly abstract from our own experiences of things, into thinking that there is, in fact, a tree that's falling in the forest and nobody, not even God, is seeing it. That we're not, that's a vicious abstraction. But the fact that you can't separate those things, where's the move there from then saying that, Percipi, the being perceived, is its essence, is the important thing about it. We established that it's something that's always there, if you buy this inability to abstract, but so is the fact that all of our perceptions take place in time. So maybe I want to say, essay is tempore. Everything that exists is temporal. I guess I don't see any reason why to choose one or the other. Does it matter? I'm not claiming that he makes a big argument for this. I think the move that he makes is to deny being and to say that being and essence are the same thing, and that essence is what is perceived, and that it's a gloss of the epistemological claim with the metaphysical claim. He answers both of them mm. with the same answer. Those aren't to be distinguished, and his argument for it is that you can't speak of perceiving anything other than particulars, and that all that exists are particulars in the world. There are no things that are not particulars. Those are what exist. And that's the only avenue that we have to knowing anything. So I think in the end, it ends up being like a reductio ad absurdum. It mm -hmm. ends up being a good argument for abstract entities. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has got me a taste for the uh, metaphysical argumentation. And I look forward to us reading things that actually have the metaphysical argumentation in it. <laughs> in a robust and talk about all these these serious problems that Wes is saying are framing this instead of just the skeletal structure that I think we get from here. Yeah, maybe we should have read his uh his big treatise. <laughs> nah. <laughs> I don't think there's any a lot more in there. Apparently that's constructed in much the same way in terms of talking about just giving objections. Basically the same strategy he was pursuing in Pilus and Delenus here. If you like that we could read Aristotle and Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a date. <laughs> Eventually. Those are hard books, Mark. <laughs> like, read three pages, it could take you all, you know, those are... I know, and we chose this one in part. Well, I don't know, Wes chose it, but I, I went along with it, partially because this would be an easy and fun reading. And it was. Mm-hmm. I'd never read it before, and I have to agree with Wes's sort of uh, summary that it's much more interesting in reading it than you might have thought by the three-sentence characterizations of Barclay as being immaterialist or whatever, you know, what seems like a crazy argument. Working through it, even if you, at the end of the day, still think it's crazy, it is illustrative and illuminating working through it. Again, I think it's a very tightly constructed argument, and it He's so thorough, again, going through all these different objections and all these different possible relationships of, you know, if we wanted to be dualists and say we have these ideas that are caused by matter or have some other relationship to material substance, he gives exhaustive rejections of them. So you have the kind of argument which is detailed enough that you can look at with some detail some of the assumptions that you might reject to escape his conclusions. I mean, I think Mark is right. As far as an existence of the proof of God, well, yeah, you can erect some other metaphysics probably to do the same work. You know, at some point, it's just a matter of a model that works, right? And if you want that model to be God, then you could move to the pragmatic position and say, okay, at, at this point, I'm going to choose the model that also accords with my religious sensibilities. But anyway, but beyond that, I focused in on this abstraction as being the linchpin and Barclay's nominalism is something you have to reject if you want to get out of his arguments. I'm sure there are other assumptions too, but I would it'd be hard for me to spell those out. But I think the more one looks at Barclay, the more you'll get a sense of the kinds of positions you're forced into if you want to maintain the typical conception of a non-mental substance. So do you know the name of a post-Barclayan phenomenalist for this position described where you think that, okay, yeah, it's just everything is ideas, but it's just ideas that we have. It's a social thing. You know, that's what provides the objectivity. Or we have to start talking about counterfactuals. We say that the desk is here, you know, even though nobody's looking at it. It just means that if somebody did look at it, they'd see it. And so the counterfactual becomes the basic metaphysical thing. Right. Which is that's, yeah. Even more confusing, like that what the, these possible things are right. like. So that's a big. Ba- so that's a whole other metaphysical ball of wax. That, but that seems to be the alternative to saying that there's a God actually perceiving them at all right. times. Is that Husserl's position? I, I, I don't know. There's certainly guys like David Lewis or, you know, those people that talk about modalities, uh, mm. you know, really take modality seriously, but I have to save that for another time. Next time, we'll be interviewing science fiction author David Brin about his 2012 book, Existence which doesn't have to do strangely with the ontology of universals, uh, nor does it have to do with whatever the hell the existentialists are talking about by existence. It's actually talking about, are we all doomed? So he'll be pretty fun. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com to get follow-up articles on this and every other episode we've ever posted. You can also there make a contribution to the cause Please do it. Big donors since our last recording have included Ryan McCarthy, Richard Martin, Lori McClowry, Melissa Kuttner, Carlos Frankie, 
Joshua Hounshell, Jonathan Hussein, Kyle Fowler, Darcy England, Karen Woolstrom, Warren Grimsley, Scott Vargas, Robert Nolan, Jerome Mursky, Billy Pritchett, John Hedzepetros, John Ferreri, Jesse Lowenfeld, Dennis Metro-Roland, Jean J. Lacombe, Joseph Britton, Aaron Taylor, Don Ayers, and Gilad Harrell. Thanks also to the smaller donors, including those who are newly or on a continued basis signed up for our $5 a month citizen site, which is awesome. You should go uh, check out our Facebook group. You should follow us on Twitter. And if you got a second, why don't you go in the iTunes store and give us a nice little review or rating. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Every night I tell myself I am the cosmos. I am the wind. But that won't get you back again. Just when I was starting to feel okay, you're on the phone. Don't ever wanna be alone. Never wanna be alone. I hate to have to take you home. Wanted too much to say no, no. you back